Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Wednesday the 15th of March 2023. And yes, it's the Ides of March, but nothing to beware of here. We have an absolutely fabulous interview for you. First of all, we'd like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Wajak and Noongar land. We're also asking you to influence your local politicians with the message that we really need to change our energy policies and move to renewable energy sources to mitigate the effects of climate change. And each month, we love bringing you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, our friend, toxicologist and amateur astronomer, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave brings you his monthly sky guide with all the essential observational highlights for telescopers, astrophotographers, and naked eye observers. Each month, Ian also includes Ian's Tangent, where he takes us on a short journey of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we bring you an exclusive and in depth interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, particle physicist, radio telescope engineer, data scientist or space scientist. So right now, we're going to zoom over to Perth in Western Australia to meet Mia Walker, an amazing engineer and project officer whose engineering skills keep the Murchison Widefield Array seeking out the secrets of the universe. Hello, Mia. Hi, Brendan. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with an amazing West Australian radio telescope engineer and project officer, Mia Walker. Mia provides a telescope operations support that makes it possible for radio astronomers and astrophysicists to understand how our universe works. And without people like Mia, they'd all be staring at blank screens. Now, she works to keep incredibly complex antenna arrays running and does a lot of communications and translating engineering and science jargon into something that humans can understand. So she has been described as the Ahura of the Murchison Wide Field Array Telescope. And thanks for speaking with us today, Mia. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. So... Before we talk about your career pathway and your favourite radio telescopes and antenna designs, would you like to tell us where you grew up, please, Mia, and tell us how you first became interested in science, in engineering and space? Yeah, well, I hail from the far-off distant land of Geraldton, or Gero, which is on the coast of Western Australia, and it's a country town. I'd say uh, we're approaching actual civilization because we're now big enough to have two McDonald's stores. <laughs> I grew up in the ranges surrounding Geraldton and we had the best view of the sky. My mum used to wake us up in the middle of the night to look at the meteor showers. So that was my introduction to space. But it didn't matter if I was interested in astronomy, actually, because my older brother had already laid a claim to it with all of his posters about rockets and planets. So naturally, I couldn't consider it as a career option for the longest time. And even now, if he decided that he wanted to take up astrophysics, 
I feel like I would have to respect the rules of shotgun and step aside to work elsewhere. <laughs> so please tell us a little about those school days, Mia, and what were your early ambitions? My ambitions were a bit blurry, honestly, but I think most people's are at that age. I was pretty good at most of my subjects, so I had a lot of choice when it came to studying further. It was kind of an issue of too much choice, actually, which is a very first world problem that I am privileged to have. But eventually I heard about, you know, this strange radio telescope project that was going to be built in Geraldton's backyard, only 300 kilometres or so inland from us. And it gave me this vision of myself as Sam Carter from Stargate SG-1. And you probably know her, but she's this engineer that travelled to other worlds. So fictional, of course, if I didn't mention that. But still, in my opinion, a valid role model for women in STEM. So Sam Carter was my inspiration for studying engineering and for working in a space-related field. And a few years ago, I actually got a chance to tell the actress that. Her name is Amanda Tapping, and that was really great. Fantastic. So success at school, obviously. Then you moved down to the Big Smoke to Curtin University in Perth, where you completed a double degree with honours in physics and electronics and communication engineering. And then the Curtin Institute of Radio Astronomy took you on as their engineering graduate intern to work on their deployment, testing and repair of instrumentation for the Murchison Widefield Array Radio Telescope, the MWA, both in the lab and in the field, which is, as you say, it's an extremely remote region of Western Australian desert and scrubland. Now, how did that recruitment all come about? And can you recall your first visit to the MWA and what did you do there on that first occasion? Yeah, well, I think it started when I was working out what I wanted to do for my final year engineering project at uni. And I wrote up this whole proposal about building a transmitter and encoding a signal to send to the closest exoplanet. So a bit like the Arecibo message. And it wound up this proposal in the hands of a very nice guy called Randall Waith, who called me to say, it's probably not a good idea to try and contact aliens for many reasons. But how would I like to receive signals instead? So that's what I did. I built, with his help, this little interferometer with software-defined radio and TV tuner USB dongles and these weird spidery-looking antennas. And I found out way later than I should have that Randall was the director at the time of a radio telescope called the MWA. Huh. And anyway, he liked my work enough to recommend my employment after I finished uni, and that put me in this tiny operations team, only about four people, and everyone did a bit of everything uh, to keep the array running. So I got to experience quite a bit those first couple of years. My first site trip, I believe I was helping to assemble something called the Engineering Development Array, which sat next to the rest of the, the MWA telescope. This was Randall's idea to demonstrate that we could construct a prototype station for the SKA telescope and that we could do it with our existing MWA technology. It was a great success in the end. 
So on that first site trip, I think I was helping to prepare the site for the installation of that instrument. Fantastic. And what a great hands-on start, SDR dongles. I know a lot of amateur radio astronomers, that's their starting point. That's awesome. Okay. Then it was ICRA. You got snapped up by the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, ICRA, and you supported the research, the design, the prototyping, the commissioning and testing of their radio astronomy equipment, including that required for the first phase of the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, as part of the MWA operations team. Now, could you tell us a bit about what's the role that the MWA plays in the construction of the SKA, the largest and most powerful radio telescope ever to be created on planet Earth? Yeah, so the SKA... It's a huge international project. And right now we know that there's a mid-frequency part that's being built up in South Africa and there's going to be a low-frequency part in Australia made up of 130,000 antennas. It's going to be huge. Cool. That's what we know now. But you can imagine that 20 or so years ago, or not even that long ago, we didn't know where the SKA would be built and what it would look like. Those decisions hadn't been made yet. But it's a big deal to be part of a prestigious science project like the SKA. So Australia was one of the countries to put in a bid to host the telescope. And the way that we did that bid was by building our own low-frequency radio telescopes. So that was to prove that we've got the resources and the environment and the people that are perfect for the job. And those telescopes are the Murchison-Wyfield Array, or MWA, and the Australian SKA Pathfinder, or ASCAP. And they're both what we call SKA precursors. So their job is to inform the design and the development of the SKA, but also to act as a training ground for astronomers and for the engineers who are eventually going to work on the much bigger SKA. But... These are also brilliant instruments in their own rights, and they have there have been so many discoveries and innovations because of the precursors, which share a lot of the same science goals as the SKA, and they've also been operating for, for years at this point, or just about a full decade in the case of the MWA. Yep. Okay. Just to clear something up in my mind, Mia, will the SKA low-frequency array in Australia Will the MWA become that, evolve into it, or will the low-frequency SKA component in Australia be a standalone and stand next to the MWA? The latter. So it will stand next to the MWA. Um, The reason that this might be confusing is because for the mid-frequency SKA telescope, the one in South Africa, That will involve some of the the precursor instrument, which is Meerkat. So Meerkat is made up of all these dishes and they're just going to expand that and that will become SKA mid. But that's not the case for SKA low. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, both the MWA and ASCAP and Meerkat, they're already doing beautiful science. So we will put our science and engineering hats on in a second, but... We'll get into some detail of your more recent work, but 
First, can you tell us some highlights of your early work out there in the field, working with antenna arrays and infrastructure out at the MWA? And really, we don't have to talk about the heat, do we, Mia? <laughs> no, we don't. But the Murchison, it, it does do weather to the extreme. So not just the heat, but there's the cold at night and also the, the storms. I had the pleasure of being trapped in a hailstorm once at the Murchison and it wrote off the car within seconds. Wow. It was incredible. I also got stuck at the accommodation, the site accommodation for a few days after it rained 90 mil overnight and it turned all the dirt roads into rivers. But it feels like the Yamaji country up there has its own personality. I love the colour of the dirt. I took so many photos on my first site trip just of the dirt, um, which is very red. I love how large the sky feels and I love how much life there is out there. There's just so many animals and some of them aren't fun, like the sandflies. Yep. They left welts all over me on one site trip. It was a nightmare. But there are emus and, and eagles and kangaroos and bungaras. They're the big goannas or lizards, as well as some wild cats and dogs as well. I still remember inspecting a solar panel once and finding these puppy paw prints on it. It was so cute. So all of my highlights are about the site itself, I guess. It's pretty hard yakka during the day because you have to make the most of the time that you get at the telescope, which isn't much really. And when you're walking out in the middle of nowhere using this handheld GPS to find a set of antennas, which are just sitting there quietly listening to the sky unless they're broken, and you're surrounded by all of this gorgeous outback, I never ever want to leave there. It's such a great place. That's amazing. Look, just a quick instrumental follow-up question, Mia. I was up at a Tidbinbilla tracking station when the Cassini probe crashed into Saturn and we watched the signal flatline and we all experienced a, an eerie and, in my case, a deep sadness as we farewelled the Cassini spacecraft. And I also felt sadness watching that video of a 300-metre Arecibo dish collapsing. For your tech teams and engineers, you're doing quite the opposite. You're bringing a new radio telescope array to life. You're calibrating, synchronising, verifying, maintaining its life signals. You've been working now on the MWA for quite a few years. And is there an emotional attachment, Mia? Absolutely. Logically, you know, there's nothing that's going to last forever. Eventually there will be a time when we can't fix what's broke or it needs to be decommissioned to make way for the newest instrument. But we're not Vulcans. So there's always going to be memories or experiences or values attached to these things that influence how we feel about them, even if they're just bits of metal. I think we unintentionally humanise these things too, like with Oppie the Mars rover which probably doesn't help. Yeah. But I think that having that emotional attachment or that passion for something is a really clear sign that the project is meaningful to people, that it's having an impact. And I felt the same as you when I saw that dish collapse, you know, that sense of loss. But like you said, it works the other way around as well. 
most recent example for me was during the live stream of the Artemis One launch late last year. And there was this palpable feeling of excitement in the room as this new project was sort of being born. So although it's a bit counterintuitive, I think that that emotion, not logic, is what keeps a lot of people engaged and it's what drives a lot of these science projects, including the MWA. Yeah, that's so lovely. (laughs) Okay. Now, where I live in country Victoria, the other side of the country from you, It's usually, in my location, it's usually very dry and we always look forward to the next rain. But I guess the MWA instrument engineers, I know you're theoretically in a desert there and and you rarely pray for rain since moisture is the enemy of electronics and connections. Can you tell us how you protect the MWA from that enemy, from the elements? Well, I know I spoke about the storms earlier, so it might be a surprise when I say that the biggest issue we have with rain is when it stops us from getting to site, so when the roads close. The antenna elements that we have are pretty simple and all our connections, for the most part, waterproof. So as long as they're not located in a water flow area, they handle the rain pretty well, but they don't like lightning so much (laughs) and of course the summer heat I know I said I wasn't going to talk about it but yesterday the ambient temperature on site was 46 degrees or about 115 Fahrenheit I think and you know your electronics are going to be a lot hotter than that as well but I would say our main enemy is the same as for all radio telescopes and that's radio frequency interference or RFI and you would have heard about it before. It's the, the radio equivalent of light pollution and any extra background noise that we get that can ruin frequency channels at best or whole observations at worst. And it's the reason that we've put our telescope in the middle of nowhere to protect it from all those stray terrestrial transmissions like FM radio. And we don't have any wireless connectivity anywhere on site. There's no phone reception Either there is a shielded control building that houses all of our computing equipment, like our correlator, and everything that's deployed on site first has to undergo a whole battery of of tests, these EMC or electromagnetic compatibility tests, and they're measured against different emission standards. And the Australian government actually declared the whole area around the Murchison Observatory a radio quiet zone to help protect our telescopes from RFI. So with all these measures in place, it's actually one of the best places on the planet to do radio astronomy. (laughs) Nice and quiet. So your whole facilities building there is inside this huge Faraday cage. Right. Yeah, Uh, look, there's an evolving story there. With You might be in an isolated region in the middle of nowhere where you can exclude those terrestrial radio frequency interference, but then Right above you, there's all of those constellations of low-Earth orbit satellites talking to each other with radio signals. So that's going to be a a filtering thing that we're going to have to deal with more and more in the future, I imagine. 100%. Okay, thank you, Mia. Now, I found a paper that you were involved in last year 
which also included Dr. Stephen Tingay as an author who we've previously interviewed here. In that paper, you described the design and prototype of a new array, the Engineering Development Array 2 and its role in the SKA. It looks like it's incredibly complex work. And so for the purpose of this podcast and our audience, could you simply tell us what spider antennas and dipoles are and if a new generation of spider antenna will be designed to become part of the low frequency detectors for the SKA? So earlier I spoke about the MWA and how it's this precursor to the SKA. Well, the engineering development array in that paper is a, it's not a precursor, it's a prototype for the SKA, which is slightly different again. So it was built fairly recently and it uses most of the, the technology that we expect to see in the real deal when the low frequency SKA is constructed. And it has a companion as well, an official SKA prototype called the Aperture Array Verification System. We have so many acronyms, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but the only major difference between these two prototypes are the antennas that they use. So the engineering development array that uses the same antennas as the MWA, and they're easy to recognise. They go by many names like spiders, as you said, or bat wings or, or bow ties. But they're, in essence, a simple dipole antenna that picks up radio frequencies in the megahertz range, a lot like your car radio. And they're less than a metre across. And their size and their shape, that was all optimised to hear the really faint radio waves that come from outer space. And we get them flat packed in a cardboard box. And if you're really quick, you can assemble one in about under three minutes. Wow. And on the other hand, you've got the Aperture Array Verification System prototype. That's a mouthful. And that uses the Christmas tree style log periodic antennas, which are now iconic for the SKA. And these antennas respond to roughly the same frequencies as the spiders, about 50 to 350 megahertz. But they have many more antenna elements and a much smoother bandpass as a result of that. So we've got these two near identical prototypes on site. And the reason for that is because we've had a whole decade of using the spider antennas with the MWA telescope. So they make a really good comparison against the Christmas tree antennas, which are relatively new and we're still trying to understand and characterise their performance. But those antennas are locked in, by the way, the Christmas trees, so we won't get to see an SKA of spiders. Thank you. That's fantastic. Okay. Now, for the last year or two, your engineering role has developed into project management as well, and now you're a project officer for the Curtin Institute of Radio Astronomy, where you support both the management and operations team of the telescope, and you're responsible for tracking project activities, milestones, KPIs, risks, engaging stakeholders, and a whole heap of project management tasks. I'd I can't imagine what your role description is. How's all that going compared to antenna and cable wrangling out in the middle of nowhere? 
Yeah, well, it certainly um, morphed into a desk job more rapidly than I was hoping. Much fewer site trips, which which I do love, but I, I can't complain at all. It is really rewarding work and people I get to work with, it's fantastic. And engineering design just wasn't for me in the end, but there were lots of other ways I could contribute to the project, which I had fallen in love with by that point. So I'm, I'm really grateful I had the opportunity to continue on in radio astronomy in this role. It must be fantastic to be right in the middle of some amazing work on Australia's contribution to VSKA and enabling the ongoing astrophysics work that scientists are doing with the instruments that you've constructed and calibrated and maintained out there at the MWA. Now, I saw last year that you were recognised with a Shining Star Award by the Women in Technology West Australian Group. Now, I know engineering is a notoriously blokey environment, so it's great to see you as one of an increasing number of women role models whose success in the tech industry can inspire a new generation of young women to tackle engineering as an enjoyable career. Now, I can only guess that it hasn't been smooth sailing all the way, but what messages and reassurances can and should we be giving talented young women at school who have the potential to follow in your footsteps? No, it hasn't been smooth sailing, but I think it's part of the reason for doing it, you know, to make the path smoother and easier going for the next lot. And even though it's crazy to think that people might want to follow in my footsteps, it's probably stranger now to think that 15 years ago, a fictional character was the biggest female STEM role model that I had in my life. But there has been so much more diversity and visibility in the representation of STEM fields since then, which is fantastic. Hopefully that will just continue to grow. And the motto of that women in technology group is if you can see her, you can be her. So even though at this stage of my career, I feel like uh, at times a very mediocre example of what a woman with engineering and physics degrees can achieve, I'll still put my hand up and stick my name and face on things like this because maybe it'll make a difference to someone. And maybe even having some of that averageness in the mix is, is a good thing. It's probably more relatable because not everyone can be an astronaut and maybe not everyone wants to be an astronaut either. And I've had so many failures and times when things didn't go right, but I've still turned out okay. And I'm doing something I really enjoy in a field I wanted to get into. And that's the other bit I'd like to say, that you don't need to be a computer whiz or a physics genius to work and to succeed in astronomy. I mean, like, look at me. But what you do need is curiosity and creativity. So don't limit yourself because there are tons of ways to explore and to be involved in the space industry without being an engineer or without being a physicist if you don't want to be. Especially as this field continues to grow, we're going to need everyone on deck before long. So if you name it, there will probably be a role in it that is impactful and meaningful. Fantastic. And your enthusiasm for it all is shining through the audio signal here, Mia. (laughs) You just mentioned creativity then and 
And it reminds me that before I started the Astrophys podcast way back in 2016, my email signature used to be, and it's ridiculous, great art is highly disciplined, great science is highly creative, most think it's the other way around. And obviously engineering and astrophysics are both. Now, from what I've seen online about you, you have a strong creative streak as well. Now, can you tell us, Mia, can you tell us a bit about, for you, how does art and science come together? Yeah, I feel like everyone's determined to keep art and science separate. Yep. Uh, but for me, at least, they they go hand in hand, or at the very least, one doesn't preclude the other. I know that if you type something like sci-fi author mathematician into Google, then you're going to get a whole list of really incredible writers like Larry Niven, who were researchers before they took up the pen. And technical innovation can come from creative works as well, like how Motorola's first mobile phones were inspired by the original series Star Trek Communicators. So I think that changing the STEM acronym to STEAM to incorporate the arts and to incorporate thinking creatively and with imagination is an excellent idea. And where art and science come together for me is mostly in writing. I have a whole sci-fi book plotted out that still needs to make its way to paper, but I think there are some genuinely original ideas in there that I'm pretty proud of. And there was also the monologue about astronomers that I think you've seen and a poem about the first woman on the moon that also did well. But space is just so easy to be inspired by. It's so full of opportunities for discovery, but also it's just beautiful. And you don't need to be an astronomer to appreciate that. It's just this wonderful shared experience that you can get just by looking up at the sky. Fantastic. And what about the role of media, including social media, in inspiring uh, young people to study STEM and STEAM? Absolutely. So I think this is something that's really underrated as a tool or a method for preaching the good word about STEM or STEAM. These days, it's probably safe to say that by the time kids get into school, where they might start to learn some of these subjects, they've already had years of exposure to media, both TV and and books as well. And that kind of media content isn't something that most of us have any influence on. But what we can do is engage with social media. And I think now that social media, it's so extensive and part of our everyday lives, and there's a lot of negatives to that. But one of the real positives is that it gives science communicators a platform to reach more people and to get them involved or inspired. And we're pretty lucky. We're in this field where people generally love to hear more. So if you go to an outreach event and there's two people, one works in astronomy and the other in something like maths, you can guess who all the kids are going to go talk to. So I think it's important to recognise that media is something that will influence kids. There's not really any escaping that. But there's also the opportunity there to use media in a really positive way and hopefully inspire some more future researchers. Yeah, and there's some really lovely examples of that all over the place right now. Thank you. Okay, 
Right now, it might be a good time to ask how this current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your work. Um, we always hope it's over, but it seems to be keeping on. What are your personal and professional reflections on COVID? Well, we've been really lucky here in Western Australia. I think Perth has been called the most isolated city in the world. And usually that's not meant as a good thing. Shipping costs alone are, are always enormous. But it did mean that we weren't flattened by COVID like other places. It took some time to get here and we could prepare a bit. But we did have a lot of trouble with our supply chains and we're still seeing those effects. And some of the lockdowns meant we had trouble getting to site. So there was some extra instrument downtime as a result. And eventually people got sick. And when everyone in your small team is irreplaceable, that's a problem. There were lots of lessons learned there for us. We've been building up some sovereign capacity and some role redundancy as well. And I only got COVID for the first time during the Christmas that just went. And I am not keen to repeat that experience. But like you say, it's something I guess we're all going to learn to live with soon enough. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Now, I think we should bring our listeners up to date with your current work. Uh, we've talked a lot about your early work. Can you talk us through some details of a particular problem that you're working on now that's driving you crazy or astonishingly exciting or perhaps both? <laughs> um. Well, most of my work these days is with people and I can say, I can put my hand on my heart and say they drive me more crazy than electronics <laughs> ever did. But what we're doing here at Curtin and at ICRA, which I find really exciting, is that we're recognising that we have all these extremely talented people here. They've they've all congregated in Perth, this, this radio astronomy expertise, and it's their business to solve complex problems. So what we're doing is we're finding ways to apply those skill sets in other areas. So all of our experts, we've got uh, people in astrophysics, of course, but also in data analysis, in software engineering and, and electronics. Sometimes they're all the same person. But if you name it, there will be someone with a PhD in it in our building. And by translating those skill sets that they have, we've already had some really cool collaborations. Uh, we've worked with defence, we've been visualising some, some space phenomena, designing new tech and, and opening up STEM pathways into radio astronomy from other domains. So it's awesome to see how we can create an impact outside of academia using what is traditionally viewed as an astronomy skill set. So that's what I'm part of at the moment. Fantastic. It's a, well, it's a launch pad. Thank you. Yeah. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on, Mia? Well, in Australia, there's been a lot of conversation recently about space situational awareness of all our objects in low Earth orbit. Yep. From what I've seen, it's usually a very industry-focused discussion about innovations in technology and creating awareness for, for what's out there. For example, the sheer amount of debris that's up in orbit, that's going to be a huge problem. But the part of this that I'm particularly interested in, I guess, is 
why we're so keen on putting more things in space. It's that question of just because we can, we're developing all this new capability, does that mean we should? What benefits is it going to create and who's it going to impact? And how can we go about this in a way that's sustainable and ethical? And I'm directing that at Elon Musk and Starlink and his bloody constellation. It's definitely exciting for Australia to be at the table for this discussion, especially because, you know, we only really played a supporting role in the first space race. But I'm not convinced that we need to have another race, especially if it's to a place that famously can't be claimed by any one nation. So that concept of um, space law and, and ethics is definitely something I'm keeping my eye on. And we should all keep our eye on it as well. It's a really important thing we have to keep on our radar. Otherwise, our radars are going to be just full of white noise all the time. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Mia Walker. On behalf of our listeners, and especially from me, it's been really fabulous to be speaking with you. I've learned so much. I've learned a couple of really big things. Um, I've been looking forward to this for over a year now. and. Thank you, especially for your time and your incredibly busy schedule. It must be so wonderful to be in such a rich environment there. And good luck with your projects and your next adventures. Thank you so much, Mia. It was my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Brendan. Bye now. Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. But we always recommend that you check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website to find out what's up in the night sky. And in two weeks' time, at the start of the month, we'll be bringing you Ian's April Sky Guide. Radio Wave!